Welcome very much uh, to the LSE and to the Forum for European Philosophy. Um, great pleasure to see all of you here, and thank you for braving the horrible weather tonight as well. Um, my name is Christina Musold. I'm the Deputy Director of the Forum and um, also Fellow in Philosophy here at the um, Philosophy Department at LSE. And it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's topic to you, which is the creative mind. Now, I'm sure that you've all... Uh, had some thoughts about cre creativity or that you all have some sort of views about creativity. Often we think of creativity as something that's very desirable. A lot of us would probably like to be more creative in some way or another in our lives. Though at the same time, it doesn't seem to be something that we want perhaps in all areas of our life, right? So creativity is something that you expect of an artist or writer or photographer, but not necessarily of your accountant or a judge in a trial. Um, how about philosophy? Is that a creative discipline? Um, as, a, as a philosopher myself, that's, it's an interesting question, I think, and perhaps something we'll touch on tonight. Um, well, basically, what is creativity, actually? When you think about it, it's maybe not as obvious as you might have initially thought. So how is it possible to think new thoughts? Um, and is creative thinking something that can be explained by science? Um, or is it something that's outside the reach somehow of science? What role does cognitive science or computer modeling play in creativity? Can computers be creative? If a computer generates a poem, do you think that can be creative? Or is creativity something that's exclusive to humans for one reason or another? And likewise, what role does creativity play in the scientific process it itself? You know, do we need creativity to, to be good scientists? Is scientific progress somehow reliant on creativity, or is science one of those areas where we don't want to be too creative? Um, these are all, I think, questions um, that come up when you start thinking about the topic of creativity, and I hope that we will touch on some of these questions, and of course many others, in tonight's discussion. Um, we've invited three really excellent speakers, I think, to talk to us and with us about this topic. Um, our first speaker will be Maggie Bowden, who is a research professor of cognitive science at the University of Sussex and, among many other honours, um, a fellow of the British Academy um, and an OBE. And her research interests concern the human mind, what it is, how it works, and how it relates to the brain and to evolution. Her work is situated at the intersection, really, of artificial intelligence, psychology, philosophy, cognitive science and computer science, and thus also really embodies um, something that we want to achieve with these consilience events, with these debates where we explicitly invite three speakers from different disciplines to come and talk about a topic where we hope that this will um, lead to new insights and, and highlight sort of areas of common concern. So um, her own work very much embodies this interdisciplinary spirit that we would like to foster at these events. Um, she has worked on, on different topics, including the nature of purpose and intentions, biological aspects of psychology, artificial intelligence models of the mind, and on the question of how creativity is possible and whether or not and how it can be modeled on computers. And she has published, like our other speakers as well, many books. I'm only going to mention a few of them. Um, so her books include Minds and Mechanisms, The Philosophy of Artificial Life, Dimensions of Creativity, Mind as Machine, The Creative Mind, Myth and Mechanisms, and um, Creativity and Art, Three Roads to Surprise. And I'd like to use this opportunity also to point out to you that there will be, um, there's a book display outside the lecture theatre, so if you're interested 
in uh, the books of the three speakers. You are welcome to have a look at the books, and you can also pick up a flyer, which will give you a discount if you'd like to purchase the books after the debate. So her book, Creativity and Art, will be on display there. Um, our second speaker tonight will be Gregory Curry, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Nottingham. And he works on fiction, narrative, the emotions, irony, cognitive archaeology, um, is an editor of Mind and Language, one of my favorite journals, and uh, also has published several books. And again, I'm only going to name a few. Um, so his books include The Nature of Fiction, Image and Mind, Film, Philosophy and Cognitive Science, Recreative Minds, Imagination and Philosophy and Psychology, um, Arts and Minds, and Narratives and Narratives, A Philosophy of Stories, which is also going to be on display and which you can purchase as a at a discount. And our third speaker uh, will be Nicholas Royal, who is a professor of English at the University of Sussex. Um, he also has written many books, and again, I'm only going to mention a few of them. Uh, Veering, a theory of literature, which is also going to be on display outside. Uh, in memory of Jacques Derrida, an introduction to literature, criticism and theory, how to read Shakespeare. He's also an editor of the Oxford Literary Review, and besides his critical and theoretical writings, he has actually also published numerous works of short fiction and a novel recently called Quilt. So he's, uh, so to speak, here from a, both from a theoretical perspective, but also from a actually perspective of a, of a practitioner, of someone who writes fiction and writes creatively. So I hope that he can give us insights from that point of view as well. So uh, the way we will do this is that each of the three speakers will briefly present, outline their view on these topics and raise some questions. Then we will have a discussion among the panel, and then we'll have lots of time um, for discussion with you. Um, and if you want to tweet along, uh, or tweet after the event, the uh, hashtag for this for Twitter is LSE Creative. And with that, I will hand over to Maggie and look forward to what she has to say. Thank you, Christina. And hello, everybody. And I would like to endorse Christina's thanks for battling through the rain to get here. And so I hope you uh, decide that it was worth it. I'll start off by just throwing in a definition. And people can argue about it afterwards if they think it's a bad definition, but uh, just to get us going. Um, I take it that a creative idea is one that is new, surprising, and valuable. And by idea, I don't just mean idea. It may be a microscope of a new sort. It may be an opera. It may be a statue. I'm using idea there in a very wide sense. Um, and to pick up one of the points that Christina raised in her talk, I think creativity is not a special possession of a tiny elite. It's an aspect of general intelligence. Every normal adult human being has it. Um, and in fact, to understand how it works and how it's possible, I think we have to understand that word new in the de definition, new, surprising, and valuable. Understand that word new as meaning new to the person who came up with the idea. As long as it's new to the person that came up with the idea, then it's new in the important sense. It doesn't matter how many times in past history other people have come up with the idea. Now, it may be 
an idea which, as far as we know, has never come up before in human history. And if it is, and if it's also not only surprising but thought to be very, very valuable, it may get into the history books. Uh, but, of course, every historically new idea uh, has got to be also new to the person who came up with it. So that is the basic sense. Um, and uh, that's the sense I think we need to concentrate on. So that's what I mean by new. Surprising, I think there's three different sorts of surprise here. And the reason is there are three different sorts of psychological process that can be involved in creativity. And I call them combinational, exploratory, and transformational. Now, combinational creativity is the one that most people uh, talk about when they try to define creativity. Namely, it's putting together two, familiar, two or more familiar ideas in unfamiliar ways. So it's surprising, in, if you like, in a statistical sense. It's unusual. It wasn't expected. It wasn't predictable. And what's more, once it's happened, there is a sense in which it's still surprising. Think of the outsider winning the derby. Uh, that's statistically unusual, but you're still surprised after it's happened, even if you, you know, put a, a punt in it and find yourself a thousand pounds richer. There's still a sense in which it's surprising. Um, and I think that is true of, for example, um, a poetic image, a surprising poetic image, uh, where two apparently utterly dissimilar concepts are put together. Um, so that's an those are examples of combinational creativity. And I would say a scientific example would be the um, solar, system atom, uh, solar system model of the atom, which is an example of combinational creativity. The second sort of creativity, exploratory creativity, is very different. It's based in a culturally, some culturally accepted style of thinking. It may be a way of writing music, fugues, for example, or blues. It may be a way of uh, painting, a way of writing poetry, a way of thinking about chemical molecules, a way of thinking about a particular set of uh, mathematical structures, okay? But it's a style of thinking about a particular range of structures which is accepted by your culture. Usually, it's accepted by your culture. Occasionally, somebody may borrow a style from some other culture, but the point is the style isn't made up by the creative person themselves. It's there in some culture, usually their own, and then they accept it, they learn it, which may take them many, many years of very hard work. That's the case even for Mozart. Um, and then they use the rules, the conventions, the constraints, if you like, of that style of thinking to come up with new structures that have not existed before, certainly in their, from their point of view, and in the historical, if they're historically new, then they haven't existed um, before in science labs or art galleries or uh, concert halls, whatever type of creativity as we're talking about. And so if, for example, an impressionist painter uh, comes up with a new impressionist painting, right? um, it's surprising in the sense that well, you've never seen it before, it's new. It's surprising in the sense that you certainly couldn't have predicted it. But once it's there, 
unlike the outsider winning the derby. Once it's there, there is a sense in which it isn't surprising anymore. I mean, yes, it was unexpected. You didn't expect it. But once it's there, you can see that, well, it fits in. It fits in with, in this example, Impressionism, okay? Um, or once you start doing chemistry in a particular way, thinking about a particular range of chemicals, you come up with a new uh, chemical or a new reaction in that range. Um, you understand once it's there that in a certain sense, um, well, it certainly fits everything that you knew before about that area of chemistry, and you might even have predicted it, you think, you know, if you'd thought a bit harder. Uh, and the vast majority, I would say, of the work of creative artists and creative scientists and people who are creative with language and humor and so forth, as we all are to some degree, and Paul Merton to an amazing degree, uh, is exploratory creativity, actually. It is not to be sneezed at. The third sort of creativity, transformational, is in a way, in a way more interesting. Um, it rides piggyback on exploratory creativity, but the sort of surprise is an impossibilist surprise. Transformational creati creativity gives you a new structure which seems impossible to you. Even once it's there, it seems impossible to you, although after it's been there for a while, you may not think that anymore, but certainly at first sight, it seems to be impossible. Um, it's deeply surprising in a way in which the other two aren't so deeply surprising. And the uh, trick, if you like, or the uh, what's gone on, I would say, in order to make transformational creativity possible is that one or more of the rules or the conventions of the style that already existed, okay, uh, has been changed in some way, uh, perhaps consciously, deliberately, perhaps unconsciously, but one or more of those rules has been changed and as a result, structures are now possible, I mean new ideas or uh, mental structures, structures are now possible which were simply not possible before. The Impressionist painting is different. Degas, let's say it was Degas, I mean, he painted it on Monday. Well, he could have painted it on Sunday, but he didn't. He actually painted it on Monday. It's no big deal. But with, a with coming up with a completely new style of painting, um, well, not completely new, but transforming a style of painting and coming up with something fundamentally new, somehow you feel, well, if he did that on Monday, that's very, very interesting indeed, and it isn't at all clear that he might have come up with it on Sunday. There's something else going on here. Um, so those, I think, very, very briefly are the three sorts of creativity, and those are the processes which make them psychologically possible. And believe it or not, all of these three have been modelled, to some extent, not to a very large extent in many cases, have been modelled to some extent in computers, all three types. Now, you might think that the easiest type for uh, computer modelling must be combinational creativity, 
Because nothing is easier, you might think, than chucking a lot of ideas at a computer, put them in the database, and then, you know, put in some random number generator, and it spits out new combinations at you. Nothing could be easier. Well, that's absolutely true. Nothing could be easier than that. The problem with that is that the combinations you come up with, if you do it that way, unless you've really cheated along the way with the database, they may be boring. They may be irrelevant. They may be unintelligible. In other words, we don't value them. And the secret for combinational creativity is to keep hold of relevance while you're also giving this huge, big, you know, statistical surprise, the outsider in the derby surprise, and putting judgments of relevance into a computer system is a very difficult matter for all sorts of reasons. Exploratory creativity is much easier to get computers to do. In fact, it's, well, I won't say it's a doddle, uh, but it is certainly doable provided that you can get someone to define the style clearly enough. And that may be very difficult because uh, some people... Uh, historians of art, for example, or musicologists may spend their entire lifetime trying to define the style of just one creative person. Okay? So it's, not, it's got to be defined, and it's got to be defined very clearly, of course, to be put into a computer. So it isn't an easy matter, but it can be done, it has been done, and in some cases with considerable success. Even transformational creativity which you might think, you know, a computer couldn't possibly do, because in transformational creativity you are getting some sort of genuine novelty, um, as I've said, a sort of novel in a stronger sense than in the other two cases, with a particular form of um, computing called evolutionary computing, you can actually get transformational creativity. And just, just very, very briefly, um, because I've already gone too long, in evolutionary computing, you write a program to do something. It may be to write a piece of music. It may be to paint a picture. It may be to do a certain sort of sum, whatever it is. You write a program to do it. And you also give the program rules which enable it to change its own rules at random. They're based on biological mutations, if you're interested, the sorts of changes that happen in biological mutations in genetics. Um, and then um, there is some judgment made as to which of the changes are more useful, and then those are used to carry on the process for the next generation, etc., etc. And to cut a long story short, uh, there are many areas in which you can get huge advances, huge advances um, by evolving structures rather than just designing them. So all of these things can be uh, studied in that sort of way. And just one final word. Computer modeling is not the same thing as computer art. Virtually all computer artists, there are a few exceptions, but virtually all computer artists are not particularly interested in how creativity works. What they're interested in is coming up with, um, let's say, visual designs, for instance, um, which are new, surprising, and valuable. So they're artists, but they happen to be using computers to help generate the new structures um, rather than just doing it by themselves. Um, and again, in computer art, as it exists today already, there are already examples of every one of the three kinds of creativity 
um, that I've talked about. So um, that's what I've got to say, and maybe you think, oh, that's rubbish. <laughs> Thank you very much. So I think uh, Greg okay. is our next speaker, right? And, um, I'll stand up because I've got a, I can't do anything without a PowerPoint these days. Great, thank you. Um, so uh, I know very little about creativity, and I was given 10 minutes to speak, and I, I, if I'd been given any longer, I would have struggled to say anything. I can just about ten, do 10 minutes, I think. Um, I was worried that Margaret would say everything that I planned to say, but she's only said about 25% of it. Um, so uh, <coughs> I have no... I'm a philosopher, but I have no philosophical account of creativity. I think Margaret's, to some extent, given us one. In a way, I don't think there really is a philosophy of creativity. I don't think there's a sort of developed philosophical approach to this in the way that one could say uh, that there is, a, say, for instance, a philosophy of the emotions. So we're in pretty thin territory from a philosopher's point of view here. So really got just four um, suggestions about what you might or might not want to do when thinking about creativity. And this one is one that Margaret's already said. Don't think of creativity as special. So um, human beings are marked. I think they're the only species that runs on two legs. Um, but um, it's not special within the species um, all normally developing people do that. But of course, we do it to different degrees. Some of it do it much, much better than other people do. And part of that variation is no doubt due to biological endowment and some of it must be due to training as well. Take a different human characteristic, the ability to roll your tongue. Some people can do it, I'm told, some people can't. Um, now, there's, a big, there's, there's a quite a debate, I understand, about tongue rolling and the genetic basis, uh, whether there is a truly genetic basis to this, and I'm not going to get into that debate. But one thing I'm fairly confident about is that whatever our evolutionary history was like, tongue rolling probably didn't play much of a part in it being able to roll your tongue probably didn't confer any terrific advantage on those people who could do it. Uh, being able to run is a very different matter, of course. That's very advantageous, or at least it was, in the environment of our evolutionary development. And it's no surprise that that's found in all normally developing people. So, continuing with this evolutionary perspective for a moment um, being creative probably was very useful for us uh, in the kinds of chaotically changing environments that humans probably evolved in um, it may also have had something to do with what we call sexual selection because having a creative mate may be an advantage and sexual selection speeds up the process of evolutionary change um, so I would guess that creativity is distributed among human beings 
in much the way that running is, and that it's not at all like tongue rolling. Secondly, don't over-intellectualise <laughs> creativity. Graham Wallace, an LSE person who was one of the early writers on um, creativity, talked about a period of incubation for the creative process. So you think about something, uh, then stuff goes on when you're not consciously thinking, and after a time, a solution sort of arrives, and you'd have no idea how it got there. Now, there's a lot of truth in that when it comes to thinking about the kind of high-end, thought-based creativity that we find with mathematicians and perhaps with some artists as well. But sometimes creativity, I think, is thoughtless in a certain sense. There's what the philosopher Peter Carruthers calls act-first creativity. Not thought-first, but act-first so jazz improvisation, for example, goes on at a speed which makes it pretty much impossible to think that anybody is thinking in advance of doing it that they're going to play this sequence of notes. They are just acting. Their activity is creative and there isn't a creative thought process that's preceding it. So we can talk about two kinds of creativity, creativity in thought and creativity in action, and they're probably very different things. I don't think either is reducible to the other, though Peter Carruthers thinks that one of them is reducible to the other. Um, the processes involved in the mind underlying act and thought creativity may be very, very different indeed, and that would explain why people who have a lot of the one kind of creativity often don't have very much of the other kind of creativity. If the same processes underlay both, you would expect that people who were act creative would be thought creative, and I don't think that that's generally true. Third point, can't see that picture very well, but it's a drawing of horses' heads from the cave at Chauvet, uh, which I used to think was dated at about 32,000 years ago, 34,000 years ago, but I believe some recent doubt has been shed on those dates, but they're pretty old anyway. Um, don't think exclusively about individuals when thinking about creativity. So people have claimed that there was an enormous cultural change in the archaeological, visible today in the archaeological record, and that, that took place about 40,000 years ago. It's called the Cultural Big Bang. Now, what happened at that point? Did people just suddenly become much more creative than they previously were? I guess that's a possibility, but another possibility is that actually something like the reverse of that happened something opposed to creativity became a stronger feature of human cognitive architecture, and that's the ability to imitate. So the idea is that while you may have lots of individuals around in your community who are creative, that doesn't do very much for the community if other people are not able to imitate those creative acts. And it may very well be that there was quite a lot of creativity around before this period, 
but it just didn't ratchet up because people were not imitating those creative acts. So it may be that something happened, maybe biological, may have been cultural, may have been both, which made people better imitators rather than more creative people. Finally, how long have I got? Two minutes? Two or three minutes. Okay. Um, <coughs> Margaret talked about the desire to... No, um, Christine talked about the desire to be creative and whether, whether being creative is a good thing. Um, creativity does, I think, have cognitive costs for the people who possess that characteristic, by which I mean, of course, high levels of creativity, because I've already said that people generally are creative. So here's a bad way of thinking. Um, Creativity's a mystery. That's probably true. So is madness. It's another mystery. So there must be a connection between the two of them. And I think lots of people have fallen for that idea. Uh, Plato, Shakespeare, Coleridge seem to be among the people who've fallen for that very bad way of thinking. On the other hand, there might actually be some truth in the conclusion of that argument, and I think that there possibly is. Now, we do have to be very careful here. Um, debilitating mental disorders are not really compatible with high levels of creativity. That requires levels of mental control that are inconsistent with serious psychiatric disorder. Um, but there are suggestive results, and I don't claim they're anything more than suggestive, on the relation between creativity and tendencies to mental instability. So um, there's evidence for a connection between creativity, emotional instability, bipolar disorder, and a tendency towards schizophrenia. Um, that seems to be more evident in more... Um, imaginatively driven forms of creativity, those that are less rule-governed, those that are less externally constrained. So the more that creativity is imagination-driven, the more we can find evidence for this connection. So there's evidence, for instance, that this connection is more evident in what people sometimes call revolutionary scientists rather than normal scientists, to use that Kuhnian terminology. And it's apparently, I'm told, more evident, for instance, in poets than it is in composers. So that, finally, I think, is a comforting thought for us uncreative people. Okay. Thank you. Okay, should we um, move on right to your presentation, or do you want to respond to what has been said? Yeah, let's just go with them. Um... I'll probably stand. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, I'm going to stand up, not because I've got a PowerPoint, but because of sleep deprivation and um, the serious possibility that I might. Um, at least if I fall over when I'm down there, it'll be less noticeable. I'm, I'm not sure um, about the terms that we have here. I'm not sure about the the, and I'm not sure, certainly not sure about the creative, um, nor am I sure about the mind. Um, creative, 
I mean, I'm, I'm a professor of English who, who is the, uh, I should say, you know, put my um, chips on the table and fess up. I'm, I'm uh, the uh, director of a, an MA and PhD program in creative and critical writing. Um, but the word creative um, is, is very troubling for me uh, in all sorts of ways. Partly, I think, to do with God, who hasn't been mentioned but I think God is definitely lurking with that word, creative. And we humans are not gods. Uh, th that's one of the reasons why I have a, a bit of a kind of problem with this word, creative. Another, I suppose, is um, the kind of correlation between the creative or creativity and uh, what, what we might think of as the program, and, and in a sense, um, I think both Maggie and Gregory were um, touching on that. So from, from the point of view of uh, my discipline, and I don't know how many people here actually are within the discipline of English, probably not very many, is that right? Nobody? One, one person. Um, <laughs> welcome. Hello. Um, there is, there is a crisis going on in English, I think, uh, a crisis which is in some ways quite kind of understated or, or um, relatively under-discussed, which is to do with the, the growth, and I, I give that word growth uh, its full ambiguous potential, the growth of creative writing in the university, and English departments that uh, used not very long ago to teach literature and literary history and all the rest of it now uh, find themselves quite seriously and I think um, critically uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a, a disturbing, potentially, uh, uh, I would say, transformational way, if I can pick up um, Maggie's use of that word, by the presence of creative writing. It's, creative writing is now a really significant part of more or less every English department in the UK, but, but elsewhere in, in, I think, uh, North America and, and so forth. So I think there is a crisis in the discipline of English, and it's a crisis that has to do with the nature and status of creative writing. And this is something which is not only uh, in the university, it seems to me, but it's in the culture more generally. The place of creative writing, why we use that term, what that term is doing, uh, how it perhaps differs from literature or literary uh, writing. So I have two uh, responses to our topic, and uh, I thought I would do them in the forms of uh, anagrams or partial, partial anagrams. So the first is, uh, I was fiddling around with this word creative and, and soon enough I realised that it contained, if you turn the letters around, um, it, it, it's reactive. Uh, so everything uh, in uh, the sorts of uh, creative writing workshops, the way in which creative writing is currently uh, um, practised, pursued... Uh, publicised, followed uh, in our culture, uh, I think is very uh, closely and I think disturbingly bound up with the reactive. 
there's a very good book on this uh, by a man called Mark McGurl, M-C-G-U-R-L, called Program Era, which is about how post-war fiction in America, in the United States, has been fundamentally affected by creative writing programs. So creative writing as uh, determining the, the nature of post-war fiction in the U.S., but it's here, it's, it's with us, it was in The Guardian, some of you must have seen it on the 20th of, of October, How to Write a Book, i.e. a Novel, in 30 Days. Um, so I, I suppose what I'm uh, concerned with is a way of trying to think about uh, the creative, if we're going to use that word, uh, as uh, something which is um, meddling, tampering. And in fact, when... Uh, Christina was referring to accountancy uh, I, I'd, I'd go back to that uh, that conception of the creative um, characterised according to my favourite one volume dictionary, the, the Chambers Dictionary creative, uh, especially of accounting and, or accountancy characterised by an imaginative reinterpretation or dubious manipulation of established rules uh, of procedure I think uh, the the kind of uh, creative writing that I'm interested in uh, pursuing, teaching, um, encouraging in the kind of work that I do has, has, I suppose, to do with... uh, It has to do with the critical as well, but it has to do with uh, tampering, with meddling, with calling into question. And one of the reasons why the phrase creative mind is is a problem for me is that... um, it doesn't seem to take any account of language. You know, language not as something belonging to anybody, but language uh, as something uh, which precisely cannot be owned by anybody. So I'm, I'm interested in a sort of notion of meddling with uh, language. Meddling with language. And this is uh, uh, closely bound up, I suppose, with sort of argument that one finds in Walter Benjamin and also in Jacques Derrida, it's not enough to propose revolutionary theses. You have to tamper with language. Uh, And the second uh, word that I find in the word creative, and I'll I'll finish with this, is is the four-letter word, veer. And as Christina has indicated, I've recently uh, published a book called Veering, I'm uh, interested in that book and and remain interested in the idea of veering. Veering as a way of thinking about uh, what we do in writing, especially in the sort of writing that we might characterise as literary. So that's veering uh, as swerving, as uh, might be to avoid, um, though not only uh, to do that, but veering as a a movement of um, uncertain unfinished dynamism. And uh, I'm particularly interested in, in the book, <coughs> in, in this word veering and where it starts. It's not available to Shakespeare. He, that's one of the words that just doesn't appear in Shakespeare. He's quite good at using lots of words, but uh, veer doesn't occur in Shakespeare. It first becomes um, a word for Dryden, Um, and and then becomes very interesting as one moves into the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, I'm very interested in Bartleby uh, as a figure of um, resistance, 
and uh, as, a, as a Vera, as I call him. And D.H. Lawrence is also, uh, it turned out, uh, I was very excited to discover uh, D.H. Lawrence is crazy about veering, too. Um, language wants to be straight, and, and I hear that uh, in what Maggie was saying, I hear it in what Gregory was saying, and I'm doing it myself, but uh, veering for me is queer, and uh, I'm interested in a kind of logic and practice of, of queering, which would, uh, among other things, be uh, a tampering with or a disturbing of the um, presuppositions of anthropocentrism, uh, which I think inevitably, again, um, form a kind of condition for our conversation. So we say the creative mind, well, that's definitely human. Yeah? Um, and I, I liked <coughs> what was suggested about us all moving around on two legs. Um, but the, one of the beauties of veering is that it's, it's not just human. Other animals veer. Uh, and so I'm interested in uh, the idea of veering as something which is not uh, confined to the human. Um, and I'll, I'll stop there. Fantastic. Thank you. So um, thanks, thanks to all three of you. I think um, a lot of interesting issues came up already. I don't know, do you want to respond directly? Does any of you respond directly to what has been said? Or otherwise I'd, I'd have some questions. <laughs> I think. One that you start us off. Okay, well, um, I mean, I think several things came up. So, Meg, you made the dis distinctions between the three types of creativity uh, in your talk, and then Greg made distinctions between two types, really, the, the thought, thinking creativity and acting creativity. And I was kind of wondering um, how those might or might not relate to each other. Um, but then, following in from, from um, uh, the last talk, I think a lot of potential connections uh, came up as well. So language, for instance, is language something that can be inhabited? So you said language can't be owned by one person, so it's sort of a collective thing, but at the same time you wanted to say creativity is not just something that's human, so can non-humans have language? Can computers inhabit language to the same extent? When we think of, I mean, I, 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 with my students I always talk about, you know, Searle's Chinese room and the sort of idea that computers can't have language in a meaningful way as humans can, so I was wondering what you maybe thought about that. Well, can I pick up on what you uh, picked up from Greg's talk mm -hmm. about the um, acting, thinking distinction? Um, I never said, when I distinguished the three sorts of psychological process, I never said that they were conscious. I did say, I did say at one point when I was talking about transformation of creativity that the changes might possibly have been made deliberately and consciously, but I also said that they might not. So I was not talking about conscious thought. What I was saying was, com was completely neutral as regards whether the processes I was talking about were going on fully consciously, fully unconsciously, or a bit of both. And in general, I would say it's a bit of both, as indeed uh, most of our thinking and acting is. Jazz improvisation doesn't happen by magic. Uh, jazz improvisation happens by exploring a particular 
musical space according to particular conventions. Yes, it's done very fast, and the person isn't thinking out every step consciously as they do it, but I'm not doing that when I'm speaking now. I hope I'm speaking in intelligible, even fully <coughs> grammatical English sentences, but I'm certainly not doing it consciously, and I couldn't do it consciously if I tried, and neither could anybody else in this room, and neither could the best psycholinguist in the world. In other words, the vast majority of what we do, uh, even when we are, quotes thinking, um, is done through unconscious processes, which it may be very, very difficult indeed uh, to bring to the surface. And that's just one of the many, many reasons why trying to model creative processes um, in computers may be helpful. Um, so um, I agree that there are cases, as Greg said, and it's a very interesting fact, that there are cases of creativity where the person is relatively conscious of what they're doing and relatively self-conscious about what they're doing. Um, but there are also other, and I would say many, many, many more cases uh, where they aren't. And it's not that that's something special about creativity. As I've just said, it also applies to language. It also applies to vision. I pick this up. Everybody in this room can see that I'm holding a jug in my right hand. You haven't got an idea of how you did that. You certainly didn't do it by magic. And you didn't do it by a simple reflex either. There were all sorts of processes going on in, your, uh, in various areas of your brain, which again, working computer vision has helped us to uh, understand to a much greater degree than before. So I accept your distinction as a very interesting descriptive distinction, but I don't think it's, it's got much at all to do with explanation of creativity. And I certainly think um, it, does, it neither maps onto nor conflicts with my three, uh, my, my threefold distinction. But um, what, what then about, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but my thought was, well, people who are good at thought creativity are often pretty hopeless at, um, at what I called act creativity and vice versa, which does kind of imply that there are different mechanisms underlying these processes. Do you think that's not the right way to see it? Well, I would like to see the statistics. I would like to see the experiments. I would like to see whether you're right in what you say. For example, it's very often said that many mathematicians and many scientists who are using maths in their science a great deal, like physicists, for example, are very good musicians. And you yourself gave the example, a musical example, jazz improvisation, uh, as an example of act uh, creativity. So in other words, it looks as though a certain class of people who are very, very good uh, at thought creativity are also very, very good at a certain sort anyway of act creativity. They may not be good at football and getting the ball into the net creatively. But, um, you know, so I, I think you're raising an interesting question here, but I really don't think that it's a fundamental uh, distinction. Oh, can I just say one more thing? Um, as I said, uh, transformation of creativity rides on the back of exploratory creativity, right? And exploratory creativity, as I said, um, involves exploring and moving through and creating new structures in a culturally accepted style, 
And I think I also said it may take you years of dedicated practice to learn that style, if it's an interesting one, uh, well enough even to be able to explore it in an interesting fashion, never mind transform it in an interesting and acceptable fashion. Um, and there was a fan very interesting uh, experiment done by some psychologists of music many years ago now, where they took uh, 20 very famous composers, uh, some of whom had been child prodigies, like Mozart and Stravinsky, some of whom had not, like Beethoven, um, and they took um, examples of their work um, and, uh, from uh, throughout their lifetime and gave those examples of their work with dates on them, you know, the date was on it, uh, and gave them to um, highly musically literate judges and asked them to identify the pieces where they thought the composer was doing something not merely competent, not even merely admirable, but something fundamentally new for that period of time in music. And it's very interesting. In every single case, whether the person had been um, a child prodigy or not, they found that the first example of something which, tran which um, transcended uh, competence was after they had been utterly dedicated to music and practicing composition and so forth for at least 12 years. So Mozart didn't write anything of that form until he was about 15. Beethoven didn't write anything of that form until he was in his late 20s. So in other words, uh, it takes a lot of time. And you, the, just life is too short, you know, to become really, really expert in two fundamentally different styles of thinking, and maybe that helps explain the sorts of differences you're pointing out. Which would then also perhaps suggest that you can't actually teach creativity in a creative writing course in a year or two, however, however long it, these courses take. Right? But I wanted, I wanted to come back to this um, thing you mentioned at the end, Nicholas, when you talked about creativity not being uh, exclusive to humans, but also including non-human animals, and Maggie, you certainly said compute, yeah, computers, um, or you can model creativity on computers. So can we say a bit more about that? What, I mean, is that, what do, other, I mean, what, do the other speakers the, think what, about what, it? What role does language play or not play? Well, one in, I think one important idea in thinking about the sort of evolution of creativity, and it must have an evolutionary history, it's not a sort of magical thing that was granted to human beings by a god at some stage, um, And that's what people call protean cognition, um, the capacity to uh, behave and eventually to think in ways which are unpredictable. So there are various arguments which suggest that there, that there are certain advantages that accrue to you in certain kinds of environments if others of your species are not able to predict what you will do or what you're thinking. And that's for fairly obvious reasons, particularly in human groups. We want to be able to deceive people, unfortunately, and to do that, you have to be able to hide what you're thinking. And that kind of protean cognition does seem to have an evolutionary history that goes back much further 
into the dist- probably distant path. So, for instance, we know that uh, rabbits have a way of evading capture by a predator by making their path of running an unpredictable path. Now, we wouldn't want to say that rabbits are a particularly creative species. They're not. But they do have, in these sorts of behaviour, something that we can identify as perhaps being some kind of evolutionary (coughs) precursor of creativity. Is that what... But is that what you had in mind when you talked about veering and... Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I was thinking of rabbits, mate. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, rabbits. I, I, I wasn't wanting to make a direct equivalence between veering and the creative for all the reasons that, that I hope were evident in uh, the, the earlier remarks I was making about my hesitancy around this word creative. Let's not forget that protean, a word I like, is from Proteus, a god, you know. I, I mean, I, I also wonder about um, <coughs> Maggie and, and uh, Greg have both used this word magical uh, in a, it's not magic. Uh, and, and I'm curious, I'm curious about magic. I, I wonder whether magic doesn't have um, some status in 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 what we're talking about, how we define magic. Uh, if, if it's, I mean, one could say magic, maybe Maggie means, you know, Prospero or something. I don't know what Maggie means. But there might be another conception of magic which would be much closer to what she was talking, it seems to me, what she was talking about is the transformational, which would be, you know, the monstrous or the too good to be true or the sense of the miraculous something which, um, uh, in in a sense, defies belief. Um, Or the way in which a performative might be conceived of as magical, um, to to speak in the language of speech act theory. Well, I, I mean by magical, not consistent with our best science. Um... And so I'm against anything that's not consistent with our best science, and in that sense I'm against anything magical. Yeah, I <laughs> That's all I mean by magical. I guess, I mean, it's interesting because it's one thing to say something's consistent or inconsistent with science. It's another thing to say that science itself can account or explain... That would be phenomenon. a different thing, and I deliberately didn't put it that way. Yeah. So I'm not suggesting that science... You know, we should be strictly reductive about this, but um, I think we should be careful not to offer theses which are inconsistent with our best science. <clears throat> I'd absolutely agree with Greg on that. And I would just point out that, I mean, many people have in the past, and some people still, quite a lot of people actually still do, um, attempt to explain creativity um, in terms which are inconsistent uh, with our best science. Uh, For example, they talk about divine inspiration. For example, they talk about um, intuition as though that were an answer and not a question. I mean, in the cases where we feel we want to talk about intuition, somebody using their intuition, 
I would say these are cases where we don't know what was going on. This is why we use the word intuition. And the question for the psychologist who wants to understand the human mind um, is, well, how does that work? And in many cases, um, I would say, uh, if we think about it in the sorts of of ways that I've said, um, we can get a handle on that. So, um, no, I don't mean Prospero. (laughs) And miraculous. I mean... There is a sense, I mean, using the term in its sort of everyday, if you like, non-theological sense, metaphorical sense, I would say that um, biological evolution is utterly miraculous. I don't mean by that that it's something which science can't understand, but it's something absolutely amazing, absolutely wonderful. The more and more we understand it by science, the more wonderful it becomes, right? Um, So... Um, I'm perfectly happy for you people to use the word magical or miraculous in that sense of certain types of creativity, as indeed of biological evolution itself. But I entirely agree with Greg um, that I would want to resist anything which was incompatible with our best science. Now, that's not to say that I think that our best science gives us all the answers. Of course it doesn't. Um, and maybe it never will. Uh, and, of course, if something does appear to be incompatible with the best science, we need to look at the best science again and make, be certain, you know, is that really the best thing that we can do in scientific terms? Are there other ways of thinking about it which are scientifically acceptable? This happens all the time in science, and it happens in psychology, and it's happened in, in this sort of area. So I'm not saying... Um, you know, we can go straight to science and it will give us the answers. There's a lot of hard thinking, a lot of creative thinking to be done here. Um, But uh, talking about divine inspiration or intuition or um, sort of magical properties of the mind, I think is just just mystification and not not in the least helpful. I, I agree, and I wasn't saying that. Well, could I also say, and I mean, there is another reason why science, in a certain sense, you can say that science will never be able to give us a complete explanation of creativity, and I'll tell you why. The reason lies in the third word in my definition. The third word in my definition was values, or valuable. And not only do people in different cultures at different times in history and so on and so forth, disagree hugely, especially in the arts, but even in science, but especially in the arts, disagree hugely about what is valuable, what novelties are valuable. So there isn't, a, there isn't general agreement. But even if there were general agreement, um, by its very nature, science could not justify those values as being valuable. I think it can, in a few cases, offer highly plausible explanations of why we have certain values. For instance, the value of shininess, shiny fabrics, shiny metals, which appears to be a a value that's universal to all human cultures. And if you say, come on, that's wrong because we regard uh, lurex as incredibly vulgar, uh, yes, we do, and the reason we regard it as vulgar is it's, 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 you know, it's so universal, it becomes so boring. Now, in our culture, we have overridden that sort of basic value of shininess, and it isn't, so, um, it isn't quite so strong as it was. What's that got to do with science? Well, um, there's a very good argument that shininess is um, 
the, the, the preference for shininess, the value for shininess, rests in our biological evolutionary past where um, looking for habitats that would be livable and that had um, reflecting water, still potable, uh, non, but non-stagnant, reflect, clean, reflecting water. So, so in, that ex- for the, in that case, for instance, you might be able to say science can explain why we have that value But you can't do that for all of the values that we have and science just is not in the business of justifying values. It can't do that. That's not what it's for. So if you want science to justify all the values that we use in calling things creative, forget it. Do not hold your breath because it never works. So far as creativity is then intimately connected to values that would be outside the reach science. Right, I think um, is there anything that you wanted to pick up on from each other's presentations? Because if not, then we could open up the discussion to the audience. I'm sure there's going to be lots of questions um, from people in the audience. Okay, are you taking questions? Okay. Right, um, so there's microphones going around, so if you could wait uh, till you have a microphone in your hand. So um, let's take the gentleman in the grey shirt there, right, yes. Hi, Um, how would you define insight and what role do you think it plays in creativity? Sorry, could you say that again? A role in what? In creativity. Oh, right, okay. Um. Well, I would say what I said about intuition. I think the word insight and the words intuition are very closely similar. Um, although we do tend to use the word insight. Um, more for people who have a who have a tendency or have a history of having seen more deeply into certain sorts of issue than, than the rest of us do. There we talk about insight rather than intuition. But I, I think it, no, it's the name. Well, the way I want to, I'd like to put it. I think I used this expression before. It's the name of a question, not of an answer, and. Um, if you look really, really closely at a particular example, you can very often see why the person had the hunch, the insight that they did, um, and you can see how that was followed up in their testing out of the idea. I mean, if you want an example, I can give you one, but I don't want to monopolize the discussion. But other thoughts on insight? I mean, I mean, I guess an insight is often what we, the name we give to the outcome of a creative process. Mm. So if somebody, if somebody's, and I guess this applies to thought, what I called thought creativity. So if somebody comes up with an idea that we think of as being particularly creative, then we say, well that creative process has resulted in an insight. But I, I agree with, with Maggie. I mean, this, this, this doesn't explain anything. <laughs> this is just a word <laughs> that we're using um, when we think we've detected something that's creative. Um, it's, it's a word we shouldn't put any reliance on <laughs> or feel that we've explained anything when we use it. We haven't. <laughs> Okay, um, 
let's go to the back there. So, yeah, right. Oh. Hi. Firstly, thank you for your perspectives. I have two questions. Firstly, is it inherently futile to force creativity or even try to measure it? Is the trigger for creativity a state of mind that some of us can, you know, more naturally get to than others? Thank you. And these questions are for all three speakers. I mean, most human characteristics are distributed unevenly across the population. Height, running capacity, uh, anything that you like to measure is, 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 you know, some people have more of it than, than others do. And I, I would be, you know, so it would be no surprise that creativity was, uh, was like that. Um, so, and, and that's how it seems to be. I mean, it, it's very, it would be very difficult to explain the way, way we, in which we see creativity exhibited in human populations to suppose that actually all of us are equally creative. Um, that, that sounds to me like a sort of romantic, um, well, I was going to say piece of nonsense, and that's probably putting it too strongly, but I certainly don't believe it. Um, so, yes, I suspect creativity is unevenly distributed, but that doesn't mean that people can't improve their levels of creativity, and there's quite a lot of work done on this in psychology. Margaret knows a lot more about it than I do, I expect, but there are, you know, um, ways that people are said to be able to be more creative, just as there are ways for people to become better runners, um, there may be ways for people to become more creative. How, how effective these ways, and some of them are creative writing programs, I guess, how effective they are. I, I, I probably we haven't cracked this in quite the way that we have with running. So we're very good at improving people's capacity to run. I suspect that by comparison we're very bad in improving people's capacity to be creative. That's because we understand running and we don't understand creativity. We need a creative writing equivalent of jogging. <laughs> Well, and of course, people can be uh, made less creative by having their confidence undermined. And it's sadly happening every single day in primary schools, in secondary schools, and I'm sorry to say, in universities even, where people uh, come up with an idea which is, um, to the teacher, unacceptable. And it may indeed be a, the wrong answer to a particular clear question. It may well be in maths, for instance. But that doesn't mean to say that the teacher needs to make the person feel stupid um, of having come up with this answer. And indeed, they, they may not have been being stupid. They may very well have had some idea in mind, which in fact was the wrong idea for that particular question, but could have been uh, a very appropriate idea for a different one. And um, so I think... The way in which different cultures and different sort of mini-cultures within a culture, so this particular teacher in this particular school, let's say, so the way in which different cultures and different mini-cultures value creativity, the, way, the, the extent to which they recognize it when they see it, especially transformational creativity, and the way in which they, um, as I say, 
either support or undermine the person's self-confidence when they come up, when they use their creativity, uh, is hugely important here. But perhaps that's, a, that's a, in a sense, a form of creativity in itself, right? The ability to do with that answer oh, something yes, and indeed. see it in this interesting light rather than just looking Absolutely. for the answer you were. Absolutely, you were, uh, yes. For. Okay, uh, let's take a question in the front here. Hello. Um, my question is for all three of you. Um, I found the point that was made about the connection between creativity and emotional instability and madness quite interesting. So I wanted to ask if you look, for example, at actors or writers, um, painters, who ended up um, committing suicide or... Um, use drugs or all those things. Do you think um, the reason for that was more the environment or maybe the creativity and their connection between the creativity and their emotions? I mean, one, one view about this is that, um, that, that there is some kind of very close connection between madness and creativity and that by having a biological basis for being creative, you put yourself at risk, as it were, from various forms of psychiatric disorder, and that there is a, you know, basically a biological connection between these two things. Um, wh whether that's true, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think we we do have some quite good data that connects creativity and various forms of psychiatric disorder statistically but you know what what the basis what the sort of explanation for that would be I think is much harder to say Margaret again will know much more about this this than I do but I I guess I would bet on some kind of biological basis for it yeah I wonder if I could just sort of respond in a, I mean I think part of the problem Uh, with this topic is the the yeah I mean the the of our the creative mind and what actually we need to have is examples you know I think I can I can support and, and um, sympathize with a, a lot of what's been said but actually it's a question of how we think about it. the singular it's about singularity uh, it seems to me um When you when you um, talked about Shakespeare um, and Coleridge earlier on, one of, one of the thoughts that um, it, it, it prompted in me was, and this this perhaps connects up with uh, what Maggie was talking about a little bit earlier on, the question of consciousness and non-consciousness. Um, for me, literature is very very um, you know, intimately bound up with dreams. And so for me, uh, Freud in uh, the mid-1890s in the uh, studies on hysteria was articulating, we might call it an insight, I, I'm not sure, but he was, he was saying something which for me was very um, productive and, and uh, provoking, <clears throat> which is that we are all insane in our dreams. But that means you, you know, <laughs> yeah. So the question was um, 
Well, I, 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 mean, I think. Thank you. I mean, I think. I think that the other, the other topic that we probably all know is very important and is very difficult to talk about is danger. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um. Dear, I think Juliana wanted to maybe follow up on that. Yeah. Because what, uh, I'm not sure if it's been said explicitly is how creativity works together with organized ways of thinking. So the more organized or structured uh, you're thinking at a certain moment, it seems sometimes to creativity seems to go down, and sometimes. The, but of course, the best outcome uh, of a creative process is both a combination of organized thought and creativity. But there seems to be, if uh, everything is too constrained, it seems as if creativity doesn't flow. So there seems to be a moment at which there's some need of a kind of disorganization for creativity to sort of take over logical thinking or something like that. But at the end, we need both. So I was wondering... I didn't hear exactly well what you were saying. From what I heard, I feel I want to say, yes, you're right. But I mean, I didn't hear completely what you were saying, so I don't know if, if, if you could answer well, if you heard. Uh, so the, the question was, what's the relation between creativity and um, sort of highly conventionalized cognitive environments where where there's a lot of structure in place, as it were, and is that good for creativity or bad for it? I think it's probably a bit difficult to generalise completely, but I think that there are ways in which it probably is very good for creativity and that having a very structured cognitive environment can encourage creative thinking, whereas having a kind of chaotic environment tends to make creativity just much more difficult to achieve. And I would have thought, I mean, this is something that uh, I'm no expert on, but I would have thought that Shakespeare would be a good example of this because he, he lived in a very highly structured environment of, 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 of the drama of his time so that there were, there were very... Um, well-defined genres. Uh, there was a very rich literature, dramatic literature going on. There was a very rich performance um, set of performance conventions. So there was in place at the time that Shakespeare happened to come along a very highly structured environment within which this incredible flowering of genius could take place. So that, that may be one way in which you could think about these two things coming together in a positive way. Could I, could I just add to that? I, it's, it's in some ways quite heartening to me to hear this word environment being used repeatedly um, because I, 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 I'm very interested in 
the word environment and, and the fact that environment at its heart has veering. So the, the VIR of environment is, it's from the French virer to turn. It's, there's veering in environment. And, and so for me, we assume that there's an environment, but what is an environment? Uh, the thinking of the environment would be not just a, apropos climate change, but the environment in which one writes or the environment in, in which one thinks, uh, for me, has to be uh, uh, approached in, in relation to the notion of veering. Okay, there's lots more questions. Let's uh, take a question up in, in that row. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, I was thinking about Professor Bone's use of the term new and Professor Royal's comments about God or the absence of, of God in the discussion. Because it seems to me if we are using the term new in terms of bringing into being, creating something new to, to that individual, regardless of whether or not it's new in terms of the history of the world, that given the unconscious and unconscious mechanisms one can never be sure that one created that idea, that that idea didn't come from somewhere else, which eventually leads to the question of whether or not any idea could be said to be new in, in that sense. Um, and, that, and that said, does the panel have any thoughts on an alternative idea as, of creativity as um, originality in terms of individual truth um, or in terms of authenticity? Well, um, I wasn't talking about creation ex nihilo. And even the theologians had problems with that in ascribing it to God, since you mentioned God. Um, so new doesn't mean absolutely new and not coming out of anything that existed before. It comes out of the um, mental resources of the person's mind, which of course have been hugely enriched by the culture that they're living in, including the styles of thinking, the sort of thing that uh, Greg was talking about when he was talking about Shakespeare. Um, so if you're talking about um, can you be sure that you have originated it, that it didn't come in from outside? Well, a lot of it will have come in from outside. All exploratory creativity, for example, I said, uh, in a certain sense, has come in from your culture. The style has come in from your culture. I said, you know, you don't invent the style in the case of exploratory creativity. In the case of combinational creativity, um, your language and your world knowledge, and your, including your knowledge of previous literature or painting or science, whatever it is, uh, are all grist to the mill. And the judgments of value or relevance you know, that we make of, for instance, a poetic metaphor, or for instance, the Rutherford Bohr model of the atom, depend upon those shared intellectual resources. And if you had somebody coming from a completely different culture who didn't have those cultural reference points, they wouldn't be able to understand or appreciate um, the examples of creativity in our culture that are based on that. And indeed, when you go, you know, when you visit a new culture, um, you can appreciate their craft work because crafts are based, I would say, on... Um, biologically inherited uh, affordances, um, perceptual mechanisms which, uh, broadly speaking, 
prepare you to act in a certain way. Um, whereas the fine arts or anything which is comparable to the, the fine arts in our culture, in some other culture, something else is also going on there. And that's something which is specific to the culture. And if you go into a completely alien culture, you've never read about it, you've never you know, seen examples of it, you've never been there, you won't be able to get the point of the things that you see in their art as opposed to their craft or the, sim the symbols that they use, for instance. Um, so, of course, a huge amount comes into your mind from outside. I mean, we're not um, Robinson Crusoe, you know, living alone on an island. And if we were, we wouldn't be able to be um, interestingly creative at all. We might be creative in how we uh, use a twig to get something to eat out of a hole, but, um, you know, um, we are hugely dependent on our culture. We are creatures of our, of our culture. So, I mean, does that answer your question, or what, were you asking a, a completely different sort of question here? Um, yeah. I, think, I think it addresses a part of it. I suppose then I was questioning the use of the term new. Could, could I maybe sort of uh, recall an example which would be Shakespeare and, and um, in the year 1599 um, I suppose what I'm what one, one part of my answer here would be uh, we need history history is rather important and um, we wouldn't really be able to get very much further with anything if we didn't have that um, James Shapiro's book, 1599, which some of you may know, uh, is a, um, a fascinating account of London in that year. And one of the things that Shapiro explores is the fact that uh, during that year, Shakespeare seemed to make some kind of breakthrough. And um, somewhere in Julius Caesar... He couldn't really write soliloquies. And then later in that year, with Hamlet, he could. And with Hamlet, suddenly, you've got soliloquy in, the, in this extraordinary way that we are all um, uh, somewhat, at least, familiar with. But, of course, the word soliloquy didn't exist. You know, soliloquy comes into the English language in 1604. Uh, and so one, one of the questions about the new for me would be about language and, and the, the role that language necessarily plays in, in naming and, and classifying. Um, so it's, there's, there's history and there's language. Yeah. But, uh, of course, if I can just sort of add one other thing there, you know, what Shakespeare uh, does with that breakthrough is he makes literature magical thinking. You know, there is no, uh, after that, you know, there is no novel without magical thinking. There's no drama without magical thinking. This idea that one can know what somebody is thinking and feeling through this strange, strange thing called soliloquy. Um, and of course, we're familiar with it in the novel. We get to hear, you know, what others are, are thinking and feeling. Um, it's, it's so, as it were, familiar, it's, it's the very ether of the novel. Okay, I think we have time for just one last question. I think you've, you've had your hand up for a while, right? So let's. Um, so thank you. 
Um, my question was actually, I think we talk mostly about actually to be actively creative in that sense, but not about the second person who's rating creativity as you will. And I was wondering, it seems to me, and maybe Professor Roy actually hinted at that as well, that it's very much adjustable. It depends on the language, how we interpret creativity. It, I don't think a computer really has the ability to, to adjust itself, even with language, but to rate creativity as creative. I'm not sure. I think, I'm not sure maybe um, Professor Margaret or Maggie could respond to that, if, if how you would r rate creativity. Do you need to be creative, actually, for that? Do you, be, do you need to be creative to recognize creativity? Yeah. I think you, well, yes, I think you do need to be creative to um, recognize creativity, in particular combinational and transformational creativity. Um, in the case of computers, I didn't say, and I try never to say, uh, that a certain computer program uh, is creative because that raises all sorts of ph philosophical, um, a huge philosophical can of worms, in fact several, you know, which include consciousness and intentionality and membership of our moral community. I mean, just to take three, you know, uh, humdingers. And, um, and all of which are involved, I would say, in our notion of creativity from the philosophical point of view. And until we have solved those philosophical problems, we won't be in a position to say whether or not a computer could be really creative. But what I think is actually just as interesting, in some ways more interesting question, but certainly a very interesting question, is whether or not computers can be made to appear to be creative, and if so, how? And the answer to that is certainly yes, because they have already been made to appear creative. On the other hand, they could be uh, a great deal better, and we need to find out how. And one of the um, things that I mentioned earlier when I talked about combinational creativity in computers, and I said this looks as though it's going to be easy, but actually it's very difficult, because we would have to um, be able to express our notions of relevance you know, sufficiently explicitly to put them into the computer for it to be able to make up some judgments at such points. So there are all sorts of um, very interesting and very, very difficult problems um, facing the person who wants to try to make computers appear creative. And personally, I don't think that we will ever manage, particularly in literature, particularly, I don't think we'll ever manage to... Um, make computers with the sort, the degree of subtlety and richness uh, of, of the best human creativity in this area, because, not because I don't think it's possible in principle, because I think it's just too difficult in practice, and we'd have to understand the sort of psychological theory very much better than we do, and possibly much better than we ever will. But it isn't a point of principle. Can I just say... I don't think you have to be very creative to recognize creativity. I mean, anybody who can do basic physics can recognize the creativity of Einstein, but it takes an enormous amount of creativity to create relativity theory. Okay, then, um, I think, unfortunately, we're at the end of our time, although I know that there's still a lot of questions. So please join me in thanking our three speakers for this discussion, and thanks to you as well for your interesting questions.